Hi, and welcome to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. Join us for interviews, updates and chat with artists, influencers and those that manufacture the gear that we love. Hello and welcome to uh, 9 to 42, which is the podcast from the guys at the Guitar Show UK. I am looking at my good friend, Jason Hunt, on screen. How are you, Jace? I'm very good, Ant. How are you? Happy Christmas. Yes, happy, happy Christmas. New Year. Yes, I'm really well. I'm really well. And and the world has changed for both of us. You look different to what you would normally look. Um, and that's because we've both got new microphones, haven't we? We have, Yes. T- taking advantage of the fact that you used to work for sure yeah, and we got a deal <laughs> and we got a deal yeah um but what it means is we've we've abandoned the the reflection filters so i can actually see all of your face oh yeah of course yeah that's going to go to work now the old setup just in case i have to do something in my office one day in case you have to emergency podcast in case well emergency podcast or emergency zoom or you know whatever right so so yes, I'm thinking we're looking pretty pretty dapper now with our with our posh. Uh, it's, if you see a picture of us, these are the mics that you kind of see all the YouTubers use. So we're getting down with the kids, aren't we? Yeah, it's it's time to replace my um, crappy old USB microphone and actually get a proper one. Get a proper mic, which is why we we both sound so Magic FM today. Um, <laughs> which is what you've got now moving forward. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should be introducing a bit of Michael Bolton. Um, no, God, no. Although that does come up in the next podcast. It does. Michael Bolton does come up in the next podcast, yes. But we'll we'll keep that a secret for the time being. What we do need to talk about is we need to talk about, as from now, as from this episode, we are, we're, this is a sponsored podcast. Yeah, sponsored by Focusrite. I, I, I can't believe it. I know. I know it's it's absolutely it's fantastic. So we are now sponsored by we're now sponsored by Focusrite. And if you don't know Focusrite, they do um, a, a lot in the kind of recording space. Uh, they do a lot of interfaces and they do some mics and what have you. And they're um, it's a very simple ethos. Their company they just want to remove any barriers to to making music or creativity. So they have a range of stuff and it is all it's easy to use. Now they've sent us a bit of script, haven't they? They have. I'm not reading it out. Though. And it's it's a little. It's not really in keeping with this podcast, is it? Really? No. I don't. I don't want to say it's shit because that would be unfair. Because somebody <laughs> slaved over that. But it's not really me and you talking, is it? No. No. Um, but you know, um, we'll go back to them and say, can we say this? Can we say that? Um, but they were aware right from the very start that it was not to be too sensible no. and corporate. Uh, but you know, saying that, I am recording on a Scarlet Two I Two interface. Yes, uh, which is the sec- second one I've had. Um, I, I've you- had it. I have a Scarlet as well. I had a Scarlet for years and years and years, and I've uh, and and do you know what? They are and exactly what they say on the tin device. Mm. You you plug it into your computer. You plug a microphone into it. You plug a set of headphones in, and it just works. And it's just there, and whether you're using it for recording or for Zoom or what have you, it just does what it's supposed to do. It does. Uh, um, you know, and I think that's probably the best you can say about 
about anything focus right really i mean they have some wonderful top end stuff and they do have some really nice other stuff and they, they you know some great preamps and bits and pieces but if you want to get into doing the kind of things that we're doing now just one of their little red boxes will just it'll just do it for you i know that um at bim our whole building i was gonna say skynet uh is rednet skynet uh, <laughs> Uh, Rednet, so any, any room can be turned into a recording studio, which is brilliant. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, thanks to thanks to the chaps at Focus, right? We will mention them. Um, obviously, one of the joys of sponsorship is that is that it's that repetition thing. So we we will be mentioning it a little bit, but without them, um, you know, this this ensures that this thing carries on spinning. Um, you know, for us, doesn't it? So. Uh, it started off as a kind of a six month plan and and now we and now thanks to folks right we can carry on going for a bit longer which is great because we've got some some great guests in the offing as well which is yeah. fab which is fab uh, which brings us to today um yeah and actually before we go to that we've just gone it's so it's the 30th of december today um it is and i don't know if you noticed this but itv3 was Back to back carry on films. Oh, did yes <laughs> over the over the Christmas period, uh, which I had to snigger at when I when I I, I turned it on. I found was, I, I seemed I watched fifteen minutes of Carry On Dick. <laughs> I, I all I all all I thought was we were riding the zeitgeist. Yes, yeah, yes. <laughs> There's clearly somebody who does scheduling for I for, for the wider ITV network is clearly a nine to forty two listener. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but I did have to smile at I did have to smile at that. Anyway, today, today, so we've we've um we've we've got an epic chat today with a chap called uh, Joel McIver. How do you know Joel? Uh Joel um uh, we met at BIM in Birmingham a couple of years ago. So three years ago, maybe. Um so Freshers Week, um you get a chance to have a sit down and chat to a tutor. And Joel was on the journalism course and I was on event management and music business courses. And uh, we got, I'm so odd now, but we got literally hundreds of students running around the building. Um, so uh, Joel and I ended up sharing a quite a large room, sat either end of it. Um, but there would be these periods where um, the students would go off and they'd have like a talk in one of the main lecture halls and then come out and meet tutors and blah, blah, blah. So we had, sort of, I don't know, half an hour of sat just chatting and we'd never met before. I ingratiated myself to him completely and I was like, oh, I'm Jason. Um, he said, oh, I'm Joel. Uh, you know, when I'm not doing this, I work for Future. And I went, oh, I hate Future. <laughs> <laughs> but but amazingly we did get on incredibly well after that <laughs> i'm leaving that in by the way just before you you ring me and say oh can you edit that out no it's staying in that no no it's, no um yeah <laughs> uh, so he's he's um um kind of a well he's he's uh i don't suppose what what would you say he's he's an author he's an author um, he's a journalist he's a journalist he's a, uh, He's an obit writer, um, uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, par excellence, um, and is a po- and a podcaster, and a podcaster. Yeah, I mean, he told me we were sat in and we were talking about how when I was a a kid, um, how important the Kerrang journalists were to me, 
And, and you know, because it was a pre-internet world and, you know, there was no Spotify where you could go and listen to stuff, I ended up, you know, um, following certain writers that wrote for Kerrang! because I trusted their opinion. And, you know, when you've got five quid a week to spend on records, um, you've got to make the right decision, basically. Um, and, and just, you know, how, how much I used to love Kerrang! And he said, well, he did this podcast with um, Mick Wall. Um, who was, you know, the the writer for Kerrang! Um, called Dead Rock Stars. So I sort of I left the meeting, went home, downloaded it, and I quite frankly just pissed myself laughing all the way through. It's very, very good. Very good. But we'll get on to that in the chat. It's a mm. bit hard. Now, we had a little bit of a... a little bit of a disaster because uh, we've ended up with just the Zoom audio. Uh, Joel may be many things, but uh, recording technician, he ain't. And what he sent back was quite frankly appalling. Um, And and we can leave that in as well, because I don't care if Joel knows that. Um, And so we couldn't do anything with the audio because Joel's audio was just, was was just you know pretty much unusable there's so much background noise in it so we've we've gone with the zoom the zoom audio is actually better than the individual tracks we had but what it means is that we can't edit in the way we would normally edit and we were having a chat about how much of it we should put out because there's 90 minutes of this interview um and you know when you get three blokes of a certain age who like to waffle on then that's how you end up with a 90 minute episode and we've talked about editing it down but in reality um, we're going to leave it all in and let you make a decision. So if, you, if you're getting a bit bored, then skip forward because the subject will change. But actually, it is quite a fascinating sort of um, little bit of a, a you know a, a, a middle-aged bloke rant about parts of the industry. So um, we're leaving it we're leaving it all as it is, and it would be virtually impossible to edit it anyway. So you'll have to accept the fact there's bits of coughing and there's there's bits of talking over each other and what have you. Um, well, to be fair, Joel's coughing was because he's recovering from COVID. Well, yes, yes. And we did talk about it. He gets enough sympathy in the interview for that. I don't think we should <laughs> layer that on any thicker than, than he does when we're talking. So uh, so we're going to leave it all in there, um, which means that with this intro, you, you, you're you getting thick end of two hours. Um, and use it, use it whatever you see fit. If it's for putting small kids to sleep... If it's for you know some form of distraction, if it's whatever it might be, you'll find a use for it. Um, but we're just going to leave it exactly exactly as it is in this particular instance. Um, so you'll hear the intro and everything again, um, and then and and then yeah, just 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 let us know what you think. Actually, before that, you wanted to shout, do a shout out, didn't you? Yeah, Ian Sloan, uh, who sent me a couple of really nice messages via Facebook page, um, just. Thank you very much for listening. I got to know Ian through the um, the other podcast, the Current Diaries podcast, uh, and then the fact that Ian was doing Couch to Five K, and uh, and having you know having uh, being a runner myself that kind of plods around, um, it was uh, it was nice to encourage him along that, and then he's just become quite an evangelist. So uh, and he, but he loved the uh, he loved the Bruce Dickinson episodes, which is great. So thanks, Ian. Thanks yeah, for that. Thank you. Um, uh, lovely to have you on board. And if you want to tell as many people as you as you see fit, that would be great. Um, <laughs> and I guess we'll talk in the new year, won't we? We will. I mean, we've actually got the next one recorded. We have. Do you want? Do you want to do the spot? Do you want to give it away? Oh, it's a bit of a, a childhood hero of mine. It is. Um, it is. Uh, it's Bruce Kulick from Kiss. 
it was it was just surreal. <laughs> it was a great evening. It was a really great evening. Um, yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed that one. What a love! What a lovely, lovely fella Bruce is. Yeah, I, I think that uh, to survive in that band, I think you have to be. You know, he kind of you know knew his place. Um, he was a hired gun, and um, but actually became quite integral to my teenage years because. I didn't see kissing makeup until they'd reformed, so I was too young. Um, so yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about Bruce on the next one. We will indeed. Right. Well, listen. You have a great New Year, uh, and we'll we'll regroup in in January. And best wishes to everybody out there. And thank you all for your support um, through the course of uh, through the course of 2020 because it's uh, it's been really really great to have you all along uh, for the ride. Uh, you don't, and I'm just looking at you now with your new mic, thinking you do not look like the reluctant podcaster anymore. Do you? <laughs> You're owning that now, aren't you? Yeah, I, I like new tech. <laughs> right, let's get on to Joel, and we'll see you all in the new year. All right, happy new year, everyone. Hello, and welcome to Nine to Forty Two, the podcast from the guys behind the Guitar Show UK. Um, in our first recording in December, I am looking at my good friend, uh, Jace Hunt, on screen, and I'm going to wish you a happy Advent, Jace. Oh, happy Advent, Ant. That's a new one. Not had that one before. I've, I've, I've come up with this this year, and I'm, I'm, I'm rolling it out to see how it goes. And I'm, yeah, I'm quite liking it. I like the old happy Advent <laughs> thing. Quite nice. <laughs> Very good. And we're joined tonight with the person who should have joined us uh, a few weeks ago and ended up with some piffling excuse as to why he couldn't actually make it. Uh, and that's Joel McIver. But before we say hello to Joel, one thing I must do is I must read a little, a little quote from his Wikipedia page. In a review in April 2012, Classic Rock magazine described him as, by some distance, Britain's most prolific hard rock metal author. How do you live up to that, Joel? It's difficult, isn't it? It's, it's all downhill from there once someone says that about you. <laughs> no, that was very kind of them to say that. That was in a book review. Um, and it's probably, um, well, if you think about it, it's a double-edged sort of compliment because it doesn't say you're the best author you're just the most <laughs> prolific so in other words you just keep churning the crap out right in, in, in large numbers but nonetheless i'll take it in the spirit uh, in which it was meant which is a compliment so yes that's a very nice thing to, to have been uh, have been told it definitely doesn't say you're the best i'll i'll reiterate but mm. your work ethic is something to be admired well that's very kind of you yes i suppose um i've put out 33 books in 20 years um uh, as well as being a journalist and an editor and, and so on and so on. Um, so that is quite a high work rate. Um, and really, I attribute that to having done nothing uh, until I was about 30 years old. And suddenly I got the opportunity to write his book. So it was like, let's get going. Let's do it while the going's good. Um, so that's what that is about, really. But no, it's, it's quite satisfying seeing the, the list of books that have come out and uh, people have actually bought. And we must refer back to your piffling excuse for not being able to join us, mm. you know, being the first guest that let us down. Uh, no, 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 no pressure there. But you, you ended up having COVID, didn't you? I did. I had a, I was very lucky. I had a mild dose of it. Jason had said to me uh, ages before that, will you come on a podcast? And of course I wanted to. And then as the day approached for the, for the few days before, I started feeling pretty crap um, and thought it was just a cold. And even on the day, Jason, I was saying, oh, I might, I might be there, I might be. And he was ripping into me with zero sympathy already. 
And then come the, come the time of the podcast, I was actually in bed on my phone ordering uh, the COVID test, um, which arrived the next night, and uh, I tested positive, and that was about a month ago. So, um, yeah. To be fair, though, you weren't that ill, because you sent no. a message yeah. from your bed, a video mm. from your bed, calling me a twat. Yeah. Yeah, I, I didn't feel terrible. I felt like I just had the flu, and not even that bad a flu. Um, and as I was just explaining to you before we started, it was the tiredness that was the problem, not the actual feeling of illness. Uh, which I still have now, a month later. But no, all in all, I've been really fortunate. So uh, sorry to let you down, but uh, I can't imagine I would have been uh, very entertaining that night, frankly, unless you wanted me to cough and splutter all over you for, for an hour or whatever it is. <laughs> Talking of the flu, you're both uh, a couple of years younger than me, so you've not yet hit the magic 5 have you? No. Uh, I've got it coming in three months, so I'm right yeah. behind you. So, I'm, I'm uh, a month, month behind you. Yeah. Three days ago, I got a text from the doctor's that said, hey, now you're over 50, yeah. you can have a flu jab. Yeah. So, so tomorrow morning, I've got my first... I, I've never felt so old in my entire life. Mm. It I won't know. just be that, mate. It'll be things like travel insurance, all that stuff. You've moved into another bracket, into the 50 to 60 or 69 or whatever it is. Well, It's all that, over, mate. <laughs> your, pro- your prostate <laughs> suddenly become of interest to more people than just yourself as well. Yeah, she said the, te- the injection tomorrow morning is only a two-minute job, so I'm, I'm assuming the prostate is going to be left alone tomorrow morning. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, otherwise, it's going to be a very quick test of that and an injection. Is You've it 50 that then that they start wanting to go up there? Get yeah. Apparently, there. yeah, it used to be 60, but I think because of COVID and everything, they've brought it down to 50. Wait, because of COVID, they brought prostate exams down to 50? No, no, not no. prostate flu injection yeah but i was talking about prostate oh that's I, what I, I mean at 50 do they is, is that the point at which yeah, they that's start the point. getting keen on that's, making that's you bend point. over yeah yeah that's the point where we start going there so we've got it to look forward to next yeah. year it's all coming i've got it to look forward to at some point this year yeah Can't you just ask a close friend to do it for you <laughs> I, yes <laughs> <laughs> i've got a close friend that's a gp so yes not a problem oh dear all the things that we have ahead of us now I know it's great, isn't it? But that one, you two aren't going bald. I can see on the video you're not. I am. No, I got loads got, of hair. Have you? Yeah. I've got a proper yeah. egg in the nest coming at the back. Oh, mm. oh you, need, you need a you need a ponytail to go with that. <laughs> yeah, for the full skullet. Um, <laughs> which leads me neatly onto the Nam show, where Jason and I go every January, and we would go this year if it wasn't for the bloody pandemic. The number of old people, old men, who are obviously accountants or sales directors or something or plumbers who squeeze into their spandex every year that was 30 years old, far too small for them. They're all bald apart from a tiny little rat's tail at the back. Um, it's just great. And uh, no doubt we'll come on to that subject, but uh, because it will tie in no doubt with Jason's love of terrible hair metal. <laughs> we did have a brilliant night out, didn't we? Uh, last, this year? Was it this year? It was this year, mate. It was yeah. this year. Christ, January yeah. 2020. We went to the um, Rainbow right. Bar and Grill for dinner, didn't we? We did, yes. Well, I have to say, it was good. It was great to see you. There were some weird people there, weren't there? You kind of dominated the conversation. You just kind of showed up. <laughs> we, were, we were at the Rainbow Bar and Grill. It's always full of weird people. Mm-hmm. That's why we go. It is why we go, yeah. Although these were, were they Irish? I can't remember now. It was... Yeah, a friend of mine uh, who writes for Bass Player Magazine is an Irish woman. She's a sweetheart, but a bunch of her mates turned up who I didn't know, and I thought they, they were a little bit wacky. But um, no, you and I had a good laugh and there are other people there and it's always fun going there because you can just pretend that it's 1987 and you're in Guns N' Roses. 
as opposed to being a really exhausted <laughs> tourist. You know. Yeah. Because, it's the uh, winter and it's always raining and crap outside and you it's like a 50 minute cab drive to get there but anyway there you go other than that it's all glamour <laughs> so i suppose to start off with a question what mm. why that why the hell not um mm. you you said you didn't really start doing anything till you were 30 that's right so what what happened because you you was it university in edinburgh yeah i went to university in edinburgh did a degree in german for no reason other than i was good at german at school oh. um taught English for a few years uh, after university in the absence of any better ideas, and then gradually started to put together a journalistic portfolio with the idea of becoming a writer. Um, and I didn't, but I didn't get a job uh, on, uh, as a journalist until I, actually until I was 29, um, which was, uh, when was I 29? I don't know, uh, the year 2000, I guess. Um, yeah, so in early 2000, or was it early? No, it was early 99, so I was 28. I got a job on Record Collector magazine where I stayed for six years and actually so that was really when I started to do something you know what I think has been productive and worthwhile and I stayed there for six years and um it, it doesn't seem that long ago I know but it is different it was different back then to how it is now because you could have a magazine that had a full staff of journalists all of whom could be quite um inexperienced like I was and get a full boot camp kind of training and how to be a writer, an editor, a commissioning person, a sub-editor, a copy editor, a picture researcher, all those great skills. Um, and uh, uh, but as I said earlier, I, I had this great desire to get cracking, right, and do something because I'd effectively wasted my 20s going around the world, you know, <laughs> smoking weed and just wasting my time, you know, and just doing nothing that I really regard as useful. Other than I did meet my wife. That was good. We traveled together, my, my, my now wife. Um, uh, so come 29, uh, I, I instantly um, started looking for book deals when I was a journalist, because if you are uh, a journalist on a magazine as geekily respected as record collector, then publishers will take you seriously when you put together a book pitch, uh, especially back then when the book industry was in far more robust health than it is now. Um, so I very quickly got a book deal and then very quickly got another one. And so between 99 and 05, I worked on record collector, kept putting books out and then I had a bestseller with a book about Metallica, um, not because uh, it was the best book in the world about Metallica, but because there was no massive hardback doorstop book about Metallica at the time. There's several of them now, but there, weren't any, there wasn't anything like that then. Um, and that was when I jacked in Record Collector because I then had a whole ton of book deals and I wanted to be at home, uh, be self-employed, be there for my kids when they were growing up. Uh, and that's what I've done for the last 15 years. Um, and on top of that, for the last eight years, I've also been the editor of uh, what was initially Bass Guitar Magazine and what is now Bass Player Magazine. So it's been this kind of frenzy of activity for the last 20 years. But before that, 10 years of really just <laughs> dossing around, you know. And I know you guys did the same, so shut Oh, completely. I didn't really, I, I didn't start working events until I was 27. Because um, I just thought, well, oh, you know, no one would have employed me until I was about 27 because I got stupidly long hair that used to be a variety of colours. What colours, of- Jason? Come on. I had um, orange was the first color that I went, which was uh, initially a mistake, but it, it was supposed to be a washing wash out thing and it didn't wash mm-hmm. out. So I had bright orange hair, nose ring, which when, you know, back in the late 80s, early 90s, no one really had nose rings unless you were in a punk band. or Grebo band. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, you know, tons of earrings in my ears and stuff like that. And uh, then I had I had black, black and white hair. So I'd, I'd done that sort of like Aerosmith 
thing where they just grabbed like a clump right, of right. hair and bleached or it. Or like a badger, as it probably looked. Yeah. yeah. And then then I dyed the blonde bit dragon blood red. I remember that. So black. And, uh, then How I is dragon blood red different from just regular red? I don't know. That's what it, it just has called. a cooler name, doesn't it? Yeah, on, it does. You can't fool us. Yeah. Uh, purple for a while as well. Um, just because I could. And I'd never have got a job in events. Did you have like a girlfriend that. at this point? Several, thank you. Lou, <laughs> <laughs> you've got to do it when you're young. But then you wised up at 27 and got a job organising things. Yeah, so I got a job at 27 and um, at the NEC. Um, I honestly didn't know how you organised event at all. I was really look, just lucky to get it, I think. Mm. And, um, and then I kind of... I cut my hair just before the NEC thing because I was like, I really need to. I've been in a band. We got to 27, hadn't made it. And, and you're like, you're just too old at that point to actually yeah. make it, I think. So it was like, I cut your hair and actually focus on a career. Uh, Terrible, and- isn't it? I'm telling you, mate, that was what my thing was. By the time I got to 28, 29, um, I was completely skinned. I was earning 12 grand a year as a part-time English teacher. Um, I was living in a flat. Uh, with my then girlfriend, now wife, whose uh, parents owned the flat, so fortunately we didn't have to pay any rent, right? In this little village in Buckinghamshire. I had no money, no prospects, no nothing. In the meantime, my friends, my brothers were all buying houses. They were in middle management. I was like, oh my God, I got to get cracking. So the kind of worker bee capitalist drone thing that we're all forced into at a certain point happened for me then, um, which to go back to your original question is why I've been cracking out books at such a massive rate since then. What about you, Anne? What did you get up to in your 20s? Do you know what? I wasn't rock and roll at all. I, I, uh, I left university. I got a degree in politics. I left university mm. and I, I, did a graduate, um, I did a graduate trainee course with a management trainee course with Sainsbury's. Um, well, that is rock. Um, you know, I was, in New, <laughs> I was in Newcastle for a little while where I met my wife, my, mm. my now wife, um, because we were both on the same trainee scheme. And then we ended up working in, in stores in London. Uh, hated it. Uh, really hated it. Did, did, did seven, eight months in London. Really hated it. Um, I think if it had been, I think it'd been central London, it would have been great, but out in the, out in the burbs, it, it, it was, <laughs> um, and, and, and jacked it, came back up here and ended and ended up falling into a business with, um, with, with somebody I'd, I'd ended up working with who was, exactly the wrong person to end up in a business with and uh it, it we managed to build very quickly and then spectacularly um blow up a business mm. um God. and so i found myself at the age of 30 started starting again so i kind of did what you two did in terms of didn't start till then but in reality i'd had one cycle through well, it sounds like you'd done quite a lot i mean yeah. it might not have worked it ended up in a particularly spectacular way you at least had a go at doing stuff yeah, I mean, I mean, lost a great, managed to lose a great house because I owed oh, so many people yeah. such an amount of money. And but, but learned one very important life lesson, which was uh, I, I made the decision because I could have gone bankrupt. The person I was in a business with ended up going bankrupt. He he straight away just walked away, just walked away from it. And I was like, I can't do that. I can't do that. I cannot look at myself in the mirror every morning if I just take that option. I've got to try and face up to the fact that whether I was too young or too inexperienced or too naive i was complicit in this thing so you know faced up everything faced up landlords faced up banks faced up you know every you know 
trade debt, all this kind of thing, and ended up losing a house God, and man. ending up having a horrible three years. Well, not a horrible three years, had a really, but having a three years where you never knew what the next knock at the door was going to be. Yeah. Um, and so ended up starting again. And so in reality, the, the, then a, a packed probably 30 years into, into 20. Um, you know, um, in, in, but it, it changed enough, change your perspective on things. Um, yeah. uh, and do you know what? I mean, I, I, I do a, a few podcasts and we did a podcast yesterday with an incredible girl, uh, who lost, who was an amputee at the age of 16. She was a runner. She got yeah. cancer in a, uh, in, in, in the bone that, that, uh, went into a knee and she, she lost a leg literally just right, you know, really high up right at the top. Yeah. And, and she, um, she's her her just the way it's affected her life and how she lives her life now she was just inspirational beyond inspirational so hmm. at the end of the day i had a business it went wrong i owed a few people some cash that was it lost a house to house compared with somebody like that but right. you yeah. still end up with a different take on you do end up with a different take on the world yeah right um, you do you know and then sort of start again and but just happened to and this is where it became serendipitous um because i um there was no point earning a lot of cash because at that point in time, I'd got people coming up left, right and center who I was paying a dribble to a week because mm. that's all I could afford thinking, well, if this goes on for a couple of years, they'll write it off, but at least I'm doing something. Cause I didn't feel bad about the bank's money if I'm being perfectly honest. Mm. Um, and so I, I went to a mate of mine who ran a, a guitar store in Leeds and said, can you give me a job? I don't need to earn much cash. In reality, it's probably better if I don't earn a lot of cash. <laughs> Been perfectly honest. Employee. Yeah. So, so, so they become the perfect music store employee. Yeah. So, yeah. you You're know, me. Uh, yeah. And, 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 that, and, but then it just went, it just went really, really quick, you know, really quick from, from working on the shop floor and just being that kind of self support guy to, to suddenly be an assistant manager in a store, suddenly to be in a head of purchase in a store. And that's when, you know, that, that puts me at 2002 and suddenly I'm, I'm doing music live and meet Jay's. So, uh, you know, it comes a point, doesn't it, when you realise that time is finite and you've only got a certain amount of time to get stuff done. Yeah. 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 It's mm. well, it happens most mornings now when I realise <laughs> that it hurts every time I try and get out of bed. <laughs> you know. And and which is oh starting to happen far more than it should. I had a conversation tonight with a mate of mine, and we both coach under under eights football, and we were both talking about how we've got this Reynards thing, and that most of the time we can't feel the fingers. Right, that's where your fingers go blue, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, they go white. It. They go yeah. white. No, my, my daughter has it. Yeah. Um, so, oh, God. It's, it's, it's well, shit. it's interesting, then, isn't it? You, you get to 50 or 50-ish, and uh, all these interesting reflections come to you, don't they? And these, you look back at your 20s, and it seems like such a long time ago. Um, I was teaching today. Um, so I'm teaching first-year degree students, so they're 18. Mm. Um, and we had... Uh, one of the best lessons I've had for years, actually. Um, and it was a really difficult lesson to try and navigate because um, we, the, the conversation originally started, you see that um, poster they did of Reading and Leeds a couple of years ago when they took out all of the male artists to just leave the female artists. Yeah. It was like 16% was female or something. Yeah. So we have a, a long ranging conversation about uh, the male gaze, sex and with, sexism within the industry, blah, blah, yeah. blah. And I got a couple of couple of students and, and they were like, well, no, you get on a festival bill through merit. And I'm like, well, 
but it, it goes further than that. Where does the merit come from? And we, you know, we, we're yeah. just cycling What's the pool of talent composed of? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, uh, and then these two guys are, are black. And I, I did ask them how they wish to be referred to in this instance. So then we yeah. get, on. how would you feel if it was, if I took out all of the white artists and we left with just the black and we had like this really, really brilliant discussion about it and it was fantastic because none of them argued they were all really respectful of each other's point of view yeah yeah and i've got a really interesting class that's kind of like half hip-hop grime rap the other half is rock music and the, the two just didn't understand each other but actually the conversation was so good we carried on for 45 minutes afterwards stood oh, outside the building great. that is really it, good and it, it was just fantastic. And they're all going, oh, no, tell me about this, tell me about that. And, and it, it it was really good. But we get when we were outside, we got on to, um, you know, the, particularly the, the grime rap kids were like, you know, I really like the lyrics because the lyrics really speak to me. And then I'm like, well, yeah, I'm 51 now. So, you know, the stuff that I liked when I was 18, I don't listen to anymore because it mm. doesn't speak to me anymore. And they were like, do you never go back? And I go, yeah, I do occasionally dip in and kind of go, oh, yeah, I'll play some Hanoi Rocks. Mm. Yeah, it's fine. Mind warp. Yeah, 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 it's fine. I've, I've satisfied that little itch, but I've moved on. I'm not 18. And they were like, well, can't you remember what it's like being 18? I'm like, not really, because it was like <laughs> 32, 33 years ago. It's just... Jace, I would suggest that if you and I went to a pub and you had a few drinks, you would very quickly regress to being 18 if those those songs were on the jukebox. Yeah, yeah, and it would be very easy for you to access those memories. For those of the people listening to this who don't know, I met Jason uh, three years ago when we started teaching at BIM in Birmingham together. I was doing a part-time course, um, a couple of courses. Jason was teaching rather more than that and still is. Um, and I think we uh, both agree that we've been quite educated and inspired by these, these younger people that we teach, right? They, they, yeah. they really, their convictions and their wisdom and insights into life are way more advanced than anything I I felt at the age of eighteen. Yeah, I, I think you feel that too, don't you? I do. It, I I find them um, fascinating to talk to. Yeah. When, once we've got past that sort of like veneer of tutor versus student sort of thing, yeah. When you actually have like a proper conversation, and you, you know, you realise um, their life experiences are so different to mine. Their, their access to knowledge was so different to mine at yeah. 18. Yeah. Um, I, you know, and I, I really hope because, you know, some of these students at the moment are saying, I mean, we're into, you know, uh, just coming to the end of the first semester in their first year. So, you know, they've still got two and a half years to go. But they're saying, you know, I want to be a promoter. I want to be a manager. I want to be an agent or whatever it is. And you're like, you're the people that can change this. You're the people mm. that can change that 16% representation on that thing. Yeah. It's not us. I'm like an old white 51 year old. Well, it's not. We have a role to play, man. We're not completely obviously <laughs> yet. And I think we never will be as long as we stay engaged and interested. But uh, you're right that uh, I think endemic change has to come from those young people. Yeah, um, yeah. But I think it will, because young people are the ones who always say, this is no good, I'm changing it. Whereas people of our age say, oh, it's always going to be like that, you know, don't bother. I tried to change it. No one listened. <laughs> <laughs> I, I came to accept it. <laughs> oh, I, uh, I ended up doing something with the University of Kent the other day. I did a, I did a lecture at uh, the University of Kent about the music industry, about people mo- practically moving into the music industry and more on the side of 
you know, manufacture and distribution and retail. So more in those kind of roles rather than just, just the creative roles. But at the end, found myself, and they were, they were fantastic. We were together for a couple of hours, and they're fantastic, uh, you know, bunch of students. Yeah. But you found yourself at the end saying, look, please come into our industry, because our industry, which is dominated by white middle-aged males, needs you to change it. It's not that the white that there's anything about our industry that is wanting to self-perpetuate. Um, we we have we don't we don't want to strangle our industry. We want it to develop. We want it to change. We want you know we want a greater sense of equality in the industry. We'd we'd like more females in the industry. We'd like it to be more representative and more diverse. Yeah. Uh, and it but it's a case of as a group of white middle aged males, it's a, it's it's impossible to work out how the well how the hell you do that. And you need you need this impetus of 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 you know youth to come in and change it um and and we've just got to be we've got to be ready to you know ready to help and i do think we can play a part there's no doubt yeah, we can play yeah. a part it's happening man i mean i'm the editor of bass player magazine which is this pretty massive magazine in in our community um you know obviously it's not rolling stone you know it's not vogue but it's a big old mag with a heritage i'd and love to see you edit vogue that's that, <laughs> can so you imagine? funny can you imagine <laughs> This week, this week, Steve Harris, my maiden is on the cover. Um, and, uh, you could do a spoof. You could do vague. <laughs> my, and uh, all I was going to say was that my view of uh, representing uh, a diverse community of bass players has been upgraded quite drastically in the last few years. So things, people of my age who are running these publications, and, it, and, and you could extend that into TV and other media, I think are all starting to understand that we need to come out of this, you know, middle-aged middle-class white male perspective mm-hmm. uh, sooner rather than later. Um, and actually, while, while I'm thinking, I don't forget what you said a minute ago, Jason, about how your lesson that you really enjoyed continued into a 45-minute chat afterwards. Mm-hmm. I have a great story that I want to tell you that I've completely forgotten about, which is that when I interviewed Lemmy in, I don't want to say 99, it must be 99. Clang. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I interviewed him many times, actually, but oh, the first time I interviewed him, um, it was in uh, whatever that hotel was in London that he always used to go to. Was it the Metropolitan Hotel or something like that? The motorhead he always used to use. Um, I went in there. He was sitting at the bar uh, with a, a bottle of Jack and um, uh, refilling it with, with Coke every now and then. And I had a drink with him and did the interview. And uh, it was this killer interview, which has been re- republished millions of times in various books because every single line was a quote, was a, an absolute sort of um, uh, impactful soundbite or other. And so I did that uh, interview and had my standard half hour. And then he said, don't go, you know, hang on a minute. And I'm like, oh, okay, fine. And just like your lesson that you were talking about a minute ago, he said, come up to my room. I want to play you my new album. And at the time he had recorded a rockabilly album. It, he did that. Oh, quite I remember. Lot. Yeah, yeah. Well, later in life, he did that quite a lot, but he hadn't actually done that yet. So this was the first time he did it. So I went up to his room, sat on his chair in his bedroom, while he played me the demo of this Rockabilly covers record. And so what struck me more than just the record was seeing Lemmy on tour. So I looked around his room. I was sort of surreptitiously looking around. He was smoking a fag and kind of gazing straight ahead at the wall while I listened to this stuff. All right. And this is what I saw. And I swear to you, this is true, right? And it's burned into my memory. First of all, there was a suitcase full of Nazi memorabilia on the bed, right? So why i mean he was famous for all that stuff being on his wall in his hollywood yeah. apartment. But he obviously had a kind of traveling set <laughs> that, that he took around with him because obviously you can't go on tour without your nazi memorabilia right no. and, like, and it had like 
you know, I don't know, daggers and iron crosses and, and all this stuff in it. And it was just near the bed. It'd also been kind of looking through it. The other thing, and I swear this is true, was a kind of a shallow tray of water near the bed, right, with some black hairs in it. So I think he'd been dyeing his hair black by, by the bed. Like in a, it was like this tray of water. I can't, it's, it's like a kind of silver metal tray with water and loads of black hairs in it. So that was my assumption of what that was, unless you can do witchcraft or something. Um, so I got to see, and I stayed there for like two hours. And, um, and that was that. I shook his hand and took off. And, you know, and uh, but it was uh, it was similar to what you've just said, Jason, in the, the, the good times extended beyond the allotted time. Yeah. Except with Nazi memorabilia and hairs. <laughs> yeah. I can remember being at the Classic Rock Awards a long time ago, like 10, 12 years ago, something like that. Mm. Uh, it's the hotel that's uh, by Marlebone. Um, oh, I can't remember what it's, yeah, it's called. It's probably the, the Columbia, the famous one, is it? Oh, that one? Don't know. But this famous rock big... and roll one is the Columbia, I think. Big glitzy awards from Classic Rock magazine, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Went to go for a pee. I wasn't allowed in the gents until Lemmy had finished and come out. There's <laughs> just two bouncers at the door. <clears throat> That's unusual because he wasn't generally a dick about security and saying hello to people. He'd always spend time with people, wouldn't he? Mm-hmm. Maybe um, he was suffering from some bladder issue which required him to be take longer about it. We'll never know. We'll never know now, no. So did you get, get did you get to meet him though? Did you get to? No, no. Uh, it's a shame. I met him many, many times. And uh, here's another story about Lemmy, if I'm allowed to tell it. Yeah, we, yeah. Um, I was doing an interview with him <clears throat> for Bass Guitar Magazine. This is some years later. And uh, in the interim, in the few years since I'd seen him, I had had a conversation via the letters page in Q Magazine, the much missed Q Magazine, where Lemmy had done an interview with them. This was in about 2001 or something. Talked about, again, his Nazi memorabilia. Some reader had written in and said, oh, you must be a Nazi then, in that stupid way that they did. And as I saw it, collecting a load of Nazi stuff, was, it, it's in poor taste without a doubt, but it doesn't make him a Nazi. And uh, uh, he was very clear about his left-wing views and how tolerant he was and so on. And, so on. Yeah. Um, and I wrote a letter into Q to their letters page, making that point of view, saying, look, I've met him, I've talked to him, He's not a Nazi. Yes, collecting the stuff is hardly, uh, is hardly a wonderful thing that I would recommend, but at the same time, it doesn't make him particularly intolerant. And I told Lemmy about this, that this exchange had happened um, on the phone, and he said, oh, could you send it to me? And I said, yeah, sure. Uh, what's your email address? I'll scan it in. He said, no, I don't trust emails. I don't trust computers. I've got a fax number. He gave me his fax number. <laughs> I happened to have a fax machine. So I faxed over. The, dial, the conversation in, in the Q magazine's letters page, which was the initial letter, and then one back from me. And I got this fact back from Lemmy, handwritten, a full page in his, in his handwriting, uh, which I still have. And uh, it's this treasured thing, although fucking fax paper's so rubbish, you know, it's faded. <laughs> but I scanned it in before that happened. And I used it uh, in the introduction to a book, which I later wrote about Motorhead in 2011. And uh, it's this wonderful artifact. It has his phone number at the top. And you, I don't know if you remember, but with a fax machine, you could type in your ID. Yes. So, right, yeah, and that would appear on the printout next to the number. And he had written, this is 100% true, Lemmy, bass and vocals. Right? <laughs> Lemmy, bass and vocals. And then his number appeared on the, on the, uh, on the fax paper, which I um, blurred out before I printed it in the book I wrote about Motet. That was a nice moment. Uh, that was great. Man, he was a clever guy, very clever man. So, I suppose I was looking at the list of books that you've written, yeah, and there's a couple of oddities in there, like yeah. Ice Cube, mm. 
Um, Most uh, people point to a book I did about Erica Badu. People say, what the hell is that doing there next to a book about Slayer or whatever? Yeah, but it's, it's were you, I know you like metal, but was that the goal, metal books? With uh, the not really, no. The, the goal was to be a published author. You know, I, I like lots of books and always have. Uh, I like lots of music, sorry, lots of artists and always have lots of kinds of music. Um, so, no, it, it seemed to me that the, I remember very clearly suggesting uh, a bunch of books for the very first time in 99, as I said before, and they included metal stuff. There's lots of non-metal stuff as well. Um, the, the first couple of books that were accepted were on, on that subject. So I suppose to an extent I became the metal guy. Um, and it's taken until probably the last five or six or seven years to, to not shake it off. I'm not trying to shake it off, but to, to diversify a bit mm. because I've subsequently done loads of, loads of books that are not on that subject. Um, but uh, the Metallica book was really successful. So that led to a load of other offers of books along similar lines. So I lined them up and that allowed me to jack in my job. So that is something that I listen to every single day, some form of heavy music. But I also listen to tons and tons of other stuff as well. Um, so, yeah, there is the odd anomaly in there. <laughs> I, t- I, I, was, I was looking through the list of, of books and uh, <laughs> I was really, uh, I hadn't realised you'd written a book on the Sex Pistols. Mm. So, um, it was specifically on the film. Uh, the, um, uh, yeah, the Rock and Roll Swindle film. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Mm. So do, do, I mean, do you get to interview the Pistols? The remaining uh, pistols? I, uh, right, so let me think. At the time, I had interviewed John Lydon once, but for Record Collector, it wasn't, about, wasn't for the book or about the film. Clearly, he wasn't involved in the film. Um, I subsequently went on to meet Glenn Matlock a ton of times, and we did a book together. I hadn't met the other two. I never met Mark and McLaren. Um, that book really is an, is an anomaly for me because I didn't write it as a Sex Pistols fan. I wrote it because I wanted to get into writing books about films because I'm, I've also been a film journalist and a, a TV journalist as well. Um, so the fact, I probably wouldn't have taken on that commission if it had been about a particular, well, that one album, you know, but the fact yeah. is it was about the film. That was what I was interested in. Um, so your bigger question, do you get to interview these people? Uh, I have written many books that are unauthorized biographies of bands. But when I say that, I always have to qualify that with the explanation that because a book is unauthorized does not make it a bad book, just as an authorized book does not mean that it's a good book, right? Uh, it depends on the critical depth that you take, it depends on your approach, it depends on the first-hand data you dig up, the, the, the interviews that you, mm. that you do that have not been done before, the information that you can present to the reader that is not readily available elsewhere, thus lending the book value. So in that case, as with a lot of those books, you, you might not necessarily interview the people that you're writing about. Now, as the years passed and, and musicians began to come to me to ask me to write their authorised biography or to co-write their autobiography, which is a nuance that, that is, is a little bit complex and a lot of people don't grasp, um, then obviously that's all about the official source, you know, uh, info coming from the horse's mouth. Um, so that changed slightly. But it, your job as the writer is to make the books as good as you possibly can in both situations, right? A, a book where you're writing your own third party view of a band and a, and a, and a book that, is invo- that involves you sitting down with them and telling their authorised story, yeah, both I mean, of which I've done. Yeah. I suppose because, you know, I mean, I'm looking at the official biographer or co-writer yeah, yeah, yeah. list, mm-hmm. you know, and you've got uh, Woody Woodmansey from um, yeah. the, the Spiders from Mars. Yeah. You know, I, the one that I, I'm really interested to read is the John Mayo book. Yeah. I, I know I, really I, well. That's that's the most recent one. It's two years ago. Yeah, and I, I I'm really interested to read that um, because I, I remember talking to you when you were writing it, and there's probably lots yeah. of stories that you told me we can't t- discuss 
on here right now uh, that were highly amusing. But um, John had actually started the book himself, hadn't he? All oh, right, yeah. The story with that, so that was unusual. What I normally do with a with a musician is I'll sit down with them, interview them for fifty hours, uh, and turn those audio files into a book. And so at that point, you need your authorly skills to 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 plan the book, to figure out where the chapters go, where the, the rise and fall of the trajectory, and all that, all yeah. that good stuff, right? In the case of John. Um, he, uh, what had happened? He was looking for someone to write, to write his, right, this is a mental story. He was looking for someone to write his autobiography. So what I thought I would do is sit down with him and start at the beginning and say, right, John, let's go and finish in the modern day. And I was slightly daunted by this because at the time he's 87 now, he was what, 84 at the time. Interviewing someone who's 84 years old about the entirety of their life is a big old job, right? You know, that's, that's probably a year's worth of interviews at least on and off. Um, but I was up for it. Um, and then before we started that, his assistant said, oh, by the way, we've got this uh, stack of papers lying around here. You know, turns out he wrote uh, most of a book in, um, in the 90s and uh, got printed out <clears throat> onto uh, a hard copy. The computer that he wrote it on was lost or damaged or sold. So we have it on a bit of pa- on, on paper, on a giant stack of paper, right? <laughs> do, you, do you think we could use it? Like, well, yeah, anything, you know, if it's already done, let me see it. And so somehow they managed to scan it in using uh, optical character recognition software um, and sent it over. And to my amazement, I had 200,000 words of a pretty much complete autobiography, thus saving me probably a year's worth of work. Um, and we were only contracted to write 80 to 100,000 words. So a standard, nice, big hardback yeah. that you guys would read is, about, you know, 80 to 100, 120,000 words, that kind of thing. So basically, it was kind of mostly done. I just had to edit it down. So I edit, I, that's what I did. I added a, a chapter on the end um, to bring it up to date because he'd finished writing it in the 90s um, and, and stripped it down from 200,000 words to the, the 80 to 90,000 words that we needed. Um, and that was done. So in that sense, I was an editor rather than a co-writer. But um, so that that was an unusual uh, approach that I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't done before and hadn't expected. But uh, it certainly made it a lot easier. Um, it was great. John's a nice guy. I, I I really like that guy. What I like about him is that I hope when I'm 87, if I make it that that far, Christ, I can't quite imagine it. But if I do, <laughs> I'll be like him in that I just don't think about the past. I don't live in it. I don't wallow in it. I don't believe mm-hmm. in nostalgia. I'm, resent- I'm relentlessly looking forward. You know, what can I do? How can I be productive? How can I spend my time in the best possible way that I, that I have left? Um, so for him doing the book, he wasn't that motivated, really. He was motivated. He wanted to do it, but it wasn't like he, he, he was more interested in, in his next album. Um, and that I admire that attitude. Uh, I, th- I think that's that's admirable. Um, and the book turned out really well. And we got a foreword from Mick Fleetwood. I found quite often with these books that a celebrity foreword is useful um, for obvious reasons. And um, Stevie Van Zant <laughs> gave us a cover quote uh, for those who don't know, who is Bruce Springsteen's longtime guitarist and also an actor in The Sopranos. So it was it was amazing to have him on board because I'm a big fan. Um, so yeah, it turned out really well. Good book. I'll get you a copy. Oh, excellent. What more could I ask for? Well, two copies, maybe. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Mick Fleetwood. I was in the, the, the classroom last week. Yeah. And um, we were talking about, because um, I, I say these kids like uh, hip hop and rap and everything. And there's a, there's, a, there's a reality TV show on BBC, I think it's on BBC, called The Rap Game, which is yeah. like X Factor, but for grime artists, whatever. All right. So yeah. I thought, I'll watch it. And then talk to them about it. 
right completely like over my head um mm-hmm. but my wife was just staring at the tv screen going i don't understand what they're saying mm-hmm. uh, you know and so i went in the next day and so i watched it blah 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 and then we got onto music documentaries and i said i love music documentaries in fact one of my favorites is the one on rumors and yeah. they were like what's rumors and i was like fleetwood mac what's fleetwood mac I'm like, Rumours is like the fifth biggest selling album of all time. No, you can't have been surprised. Come on. What did you, what did you know about <laughs> Little Richard when you were 18? You know? The thing is, I did. All right. Uh, that's, not, that's not a proper example then. Um, what, was, what was out 50 years before your birth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, Mantovani. Yeah, I, don't yeah. know. I was a big fan of Mantovani. Um, <laughs> so I, so I, I opened up my laptop and opened up Spotify and I played them uh, Go Your Own Way, mm. uh, Don't Stop and The Ch- and the chain because and they went uh, this was big on tiktok like six weeks ago oh my god <laughs> like, oh i feel so old yeah yeah i was watching curb your enthusiasm the other day and the theme tune popped up my son was in the room and he said wait wait what this is this music is from curb your enthusiasm it's a, it's a funny youtube music thing that people put on right <laughs> But there you go. You could, yeah, but I mean, I know, I know you feel this uh, as I do, Jason, because we've talked about it. This, this music, um, it's 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 a it's a sin and a crime <laughs> to look down on these kids for not knowing stuff um, because they're so amazing and so embedded in their own world. Why the hell should they? Do you remember oh, last year, Billie Eilish admitted she didn't know anything about Van Halen. And people yeah, yeah. were going, oh, my God, how can you not know about Van Of course, well, how the hell is she supposed to know about Van Halen? How is that uh, relevant to her world? You know, I mean, Van Halen really. haven't been relevant for 20 years as much as, you know, it came as a shock. In fact, you were the one that texted me before the news broke. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. That, yeah. that uh, Eddie had died. And it mm. was like, and, and, you know, I wrote on the Guitar Show Facebook page that, in all honesty, I haven't listened to Van Halen for 20 years. But then they haven't actually released any material for 20 yeah. years yeah. you know yeah. so uh, why would us what billy eilish would have been like 17 at the time was? yeah probably there's another part to this that we need to also think about which is in let's say that music in the sense that we think about it pro- probably started late 50s yeah okay so if you if, if we draw a line from 50 Elvis was 56 yeah so 56 57 whatever draw a line from there and and we were all born you know, 69, 70, 71. I mean, we were yeah. both born 71. I don't know when you were, Jay, 70 Six, or what? 69. 69, right, fine. So, so at that point, there's, there's, you know, there's 20 years of history, maybe 25 years worth of musical history, really, in the sense yeah. we're talking about, before you start getting involved in it. What we're talking about now is 75 years worth of yeah. musical history. Yeah, it's a good point. It's, it's, you know, of course we knew about the Beatles and the Stones because in reality, they, the, the, you know, of course we knew about Elvis because there wasn't that much to, to actually pick over. Yep. And, and uh, yep. you know, and I think that's the bit that we have, to, we, have to, we have to cut the kids a bit of slack. We must. You know, sim- yeah. simply yeah. because, our, you know, we grew up with a, a relatively small portfolio of stuff that was being played. Our parents yeah. were playing us. All the same stuff. We were all being played the Beatles. We were all being played the Stones. We were all being played the Kinks. We were all being played all this kind of stuff because in reality, there wasn't a lot of it. <laughs> um, and, and I think what I find really, really not really reassuring is that, that we were in the kitchen the other night. We, the, last, the last one of these we did was with Bruce Dickinson from uh, Little Angels. Yeah. And 
I'd been going through a little spurge of, lit, of listening to the Little Angels again, and and my thirteen year old came in singing um, um, "Product of the Working Class," which is from the from the second album, and he was humming it, and he didn't really know what he was humming, but he was humming it. So the tune had got into his psyche, and he was humming this tune. And do you know what? That's all we can ask, right? Doesn't matter that he doesn't know what it is. Doesn't yeah. matter. It, the Little Angels are never going to form part of his musical journey, really, because he's yeah. got so much that that's not going to make a dent in, in it. But the fact is he recognised it as a good piece of music and he was humming it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, however yeah, they get to it, yeah. it doesn't matter. If they get to it and it hits them and they recognise it as music, that's enough. That's good work on your part and that's sensitive. I, I have a similar thing in that my son, uh, who's 14, is a really good drummer. Uh, and when he started uh, three, four years ago, I was tempted, as I'm sure you can understand, when he started showing an interest in playing drums in totally getting into it and saying, right, you've got to listen to John Bonham and you've got to listen to Dave Lombardo from Slayer and you've got to listen to these 20 songs and you've got to get this drum and you've got to do this, you've got to do that. But I didn't because I knew that that would mess it up because then mm. suddenly it would be dad's thing, not his thing. Yeah. Um, and I'm quite pleased with myself that I backed off. And every now and then, right, if there's a, if there's a, a song with a drum track by Zeppelin or whoever that I really want him to hear... I'll just play it in the car yeah. while we're driving to school, but I won't mention it. Right. I'll just go. Do, 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 and then he'll be getting into it. Oh yeah. Whereas if I said, you've got to hear this man, you've got to listen to this. And you go, oh, he'd be like, Oh, piss off. Um, <laughs> so it sounds like you did the right thing there. Let, let, let it percolate rather than force it on them. Otherwise it won't work. Oh, and, and I think as well, cause our parents did the same thing. I mean, my parents told me how shit Adam Ant was. And do you know what? Yeah. They, they were pretty much right. They were cock on right. But he didn't no. matter because Adam no, Ant. They weren't. They were the, no, the, I, I loved Adam Ant, but I can I, I understand why they well, said it. We well, all yeah. understand why they said this, don't we? Yeah, but the yeah. thing but the thing is, if you look at it, if let's face it, if you look at it musically, it's not particularly good. If you look at it for what it was. If you look at the reason why we liked it and the fact it was anarchic and it spoke to us and all those kind of things, it was the right thing at the right time. Which yeah. means that when I some of the stuff that that my son listens to, and I I, I kind of cringe and go, look, it's it's shit, but I know why it's talking to you, and the fact it's talking to you is the important bit yeah. because the musical bit of it, if it's good musically, if it's really if it's really got something, it'll still be there. Look, how many of us? When was the last time any of us put on? Prince Charming and played it from beginning to end. Well, I, you know, a couple of songs aside, I love that record. It was the first album I bought. That's not what I said. I said no, I know. But no, okay. So I, I haven't put a full album on, listened to it start to finish, yeah. any album for years, right? But that album I did, I did play most of the songs from not long ago, which is quite quite something do you know it probably wasn't the world's greatest, but in, in some respect, it, it kind of gets to what I'm getting to, which is, the, the 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 reasons why we loved things when we were 10 11 12 12 13 and for how it spoke to us they they are all the right reasons at the time yeah. and it's yeah. absolutely fine for your yeah. parents at the same time to go this is shit well it's, <laughs> it's just, well the only thing i would say is that the kids are quite often put off if you say this is shit and they and they feel bad about liking something yeah, so but, you but watch think, out you know but i think i think there's the point i think where yeah. our parents would say i remember dad having a right go about that album i don't say it to josh Alison and I love it. I'll just go to our, oh Jesus, this is really awful. <laughs> but we don't say it to we don't say it to him. And do you know what? It's fine because actually, when you hear him singing and meaning it, you know, when he's in his bedroom and he doesn't think anybody can hear and he's singing and he's really meaning it, then that's the important bit because he means it because it yeah. because it's touching him. 
Yeah. And that's fine because we did that. You know, we, yeah. sang, we sang stand and deliver like we really meant it. And also it, it took us away. You know, I, I, I feel firmly that music's role is to transcend reality and take us to a better place, a happier place. And if your kids are experiencing that, then your job is done. Yeah. You know, that'll and be it, their music will be their friend for life. And it bloody needed to in the early 80s. You know, it because, really needed to. I mean, I grew, I grew up in, you know, I grew up North Nottinghamshire. You was know. it a matchbox at the bottom of a canal? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, you know, you, we, I, I grew up remembering, you know, the, the miners' strike and all the shit that went with that, living right on the middle of that, right in the, on that coal seam, yeah, right on yeah. that, with all that that was going on. It was a, it was a, it was a grime. It was a fantastic decade for music, but it was a grimy, horrible time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've had this conversation with the students that it, it was almost like when we entered the 90s, someone turned the light turned on. Turned the light on. It, yeah. Britain in the 80s, I, I hate those memes that go around that are like, if you remember this, blah, 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 you were a teenager in the 80s, you know, and it's like, do you know what? It was grim. Everybody was on strike. My school was on strike for about three years of my high school education. The miners <laughs> were on strike. I left school in the midst of a massive recession. Yeah. The 80s sucked massively. You know, my childhood in the 70s was no better. We had three-day weeks and the winter of discontent and all of that stuff. Actually, by the time we hit the 90s, it felt amazing. <laughs> well, that also that was the time you came into your own as an adult. Yes, you know? yeah, we did. We did. Yeah. We all, By the time we you hit 20, 20, you shake off the shackles of your stupid home life. Mm. And I, I tell my kids, look, believe me, um, you're going to love it when you leave. You know, I don't, I don't think we're particularly um, rule-bound parents, but you're going to love being away and you know, finding your own thing and staying up all night and doing all that good stuff. And when you do that, it's huge, isn't it? You know, you mm. can finally explore stuff and have some control and autonomy over your life. Yeah. And also the early 90s, what a time for music. My God, you know, I mean, still to this day, I'm discovering stuff, very British mm. stuff, American stuff, that, that's still really great. Um, I don't think the 80s sucked for music, man. I, I think, I, God, think about it. Start of oh, no, I, no, I don't. Manchester, Metallica, you know. All oh, no, I don't think news. the music no, sucked. No, no, I, 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 I You clearly do. You clearly no, do think that. I, I'm I, in I, Hollywood, Jace, right? It, we're talking Hollywood 86 <laughs> onwards. Just ruled the world. You see, I'll, I'll go the other way. I'll, I will say, and I've said it plenty of times before, find me a better decade for music than the 80s. And by that, I mean the sheer diversity of what we got in that decade. If you look at where we started to where we finished and the points we touched in between, that is a monstrous decade. There's an argument to be made. You know, the technology, um, the fashions, the rise of MTV, good and bad. I know what you mean. I mean, I... I I'm like you. I was a teenager in the 80s and, you know, I loved Duran Duran and I loved Metallica. Mm. All that stuff was so day glow. And I was too young for Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and Black Sabbath. Um, you know, and all the cool stuff like Chic and Kraftwerk and all that. I missed out on that as well, like we all did. And we all had to backtrack on it. I think probably the music I listened to on a, on a well, Spotify has just told me, uh, on, a, on, a, <laughs> on the most regular basis is 80s and 90s stuff, I think. Yeah, um, but that's probably a function of being fifty years old. So there's, there's a bit of that. There's a, there's a bit of that because I mean, you know, we talked a lot to to Bruce about this in the last in in the last pod, and and yeah. you know that period because I was never really I was never a proper metal guy, but I really liked hard rock, and that period of the mid '90s where you'd got the, you know Little Angels and you got Thunder, and there's a whole raft of bands around about the time from a UK perspective that was a really really exciting 
period mm. of, of, of music. I did. Fun, um, did you say Thunder, by the way? Yeah, 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 I did yeah, that book, did as you've yeah. probably seen yeah, a few years ago. That was a lot of fun. They are brilliant guys. And it was a really interesting insight into how you run a band yes. uh, at that kind of B-League level at this point, where everyone's making good money, that no one needs to have another job. Um, but nonetheless, you can't mess about, you know, you can't waste, waste money. You can't you know, take limos everywhere. No. Um, well, yeah. I, do a, I do a podcast with um, Steve Hogarth, who's um, Marillion's Marillion, yeah. um, vocalist. And, and, you know, they, they are widely regarded. They kind of invented that whole, that whole. They're a very similar kind of setup. Actually. I've yeah. been to that um, place they have down in uh, Buckinghamshire. Yeah. And I've got, I got to know Steve Rothery quite well. So I've, I've seen that operation work as well. And I think that's a very similar example. They're mm. clever, isn't it? And yeah, you're right. I think they were the first lot to, to well, do Well, they, they, they were crowdfunding in, they, they crowdfunded in 99, uh, yeah. way before anybody else did it. And, and I think it took everybody else a little. But I think the point there is you can easily do it to what you just said. You don't need another job as long as you're careful. And as long, and you need a, you need a hardcore, you know, what, 15, 20,000 people you can tap into. Yeah. Probably about that sort of number. I've never written it down. I know what. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, is but um, that sounds reasonable. They'll show up at the conventions and they'll buy the the, the fan packages and all that yes, stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 it's a relatively easy way of distributing, you know, material. And of course, you're not relying on anything because these guys are they're still buying physical as well. Yeah. But they're also coming out and seeing you play live. Um. And it and it's and it's become a it's become a thing, and it's nice because I guess for our generation, we we a lot of the bands that we grew up with are still touring and available to us because of that because if we're in the old model they'd have gone they'd have all gone they never would have come back um but now they're still available which is which is fantastic yeah we're very lucky you know it's amazing to me i look at a couple of uh uh, music news websites every day and the amount of (laughs) it's populated with old bands from the 80s and and before that you know those are the bands if they put their money away and didn't stick it up their nose um, they're still going, you know, mm. in some form or other, right? Yeah. Or, or if they managed to stop sticking up their nose just in time, which I think <laughs> is probably what most of them did. <laughs> I think if they stopped snorting at mid-90s, they're probably just about still here. Crikey. I know, I know. So on the subject of podcasts... Um... Oh, my, fa- my second favourite podcast of all time. Um, not not that this is my favourite podcast, but my because fighting talk is my favourite podcast. But your Jesus, Ed this Rocks... isn't in my top ten. <laughs> it's not in my top ten either. Um, <laughs> but your podcast, Dead Rock Stars, was just the funniest thing I'd ever heard, and because it was generally about music that I knew quite a lot about. It was it was just when you told me about it, I can remember sat at BIM with you and first you know, day we met. We yeah, were for... we were interviewing students, weren't we? Yeah. And I thought, who's this dick? He's making a lot of noise on the far side of the room when I'm trying to talk. <laughs> <laughs> and we started talking and you said you're a fan of Mick Wall, the writer. And I said, Well, I do a podcast with Mick every week. You'll have to check it out. Uh, I'm glad you liked it. I really enjoyed doing that. It it, it was just I loved the fact that, that, you know, it was dead rock stars because dead people can't sue. Mm-hmm. which gave you the freedom to actually kind of say the yeah. things that you, you couldn't say yeah. now. And I'd strongly recommend, we'll put a link up to it on this podcast for people to go and find it. Cause obviously Thank it's you. still there. Yeah. Have, you got, have you got any plans to do any other podcasts on your own? Or? Uh, yeah. <clears throat> There's a writer called Mark Eglinton, who's a similar chap to me, done a lot of uh, well-known rock books. <clears throat> and he and I might do one. The reason why I stopped doing it with Mick is because I just ran out of time. 
um, it was sucking up a whole day of my week and I was uh, teaching at BIM, I was running a magazine, writing books and so on and so on. Um, so I haven't rushed into doing another one for the same reason, right? Because time is precious. Um, but at some point I would like to. Um, that one with Mick was really good. And by the way, Mick is doing another one now called Get Your Rocks Off, which is really funny, um, which I suggest you check out. But um, I hadn't done a podcast before that one. I, I, I had this idea, I was driving along and I said, I thought to myself, we should do a podcast. Mick's the obvious guy to do it. And we should call it Dead Rock Stars. Um, and we should just pick a dead rock star each week and talk about it. And in that situation, I was very much Mick's disciple. So he's a few years older than me. I think he's 13 years older than me. And obviously he's Mick Wall, right? I mean, he was the, the star writer of Kerrang! in the 80s when we all read Kerrang! Um, and had all these crazy stories. And he's written book, many, many good books. And, and not, but among those books are a couple of autobiographies as well, which tell the story of all the mad stuff he did in America uh, and elsewhere. Um, so in those podcasts, and we did a season of 24, I shared my stories. Uh, you know, we talked about a lot of musicians that I'd met, but by and large, it was me listening to him talk about Phil, you know, Phil Linnett and, and Randy Rhodes and Cliff Burton and, and Freddie Mercury, right? And Prince and people he had met and hung out with. Uh, who I was either too young uh, to to have hung out with, uh, or, or had subsequently died before I was a journalist, um, and it was great. You know, I was I was I was at the master's feet listening to these <laughs> nutty stories. And Mick is fearless, you know, in his books. And he and I have written. He and I have both written books, for example, on Black Sabbath, and we've both written books on Metallica, and and so on. And in every case, his books are much more courageous than mine are uh, about stepping in and, and telling people telling the truth about people, like slagging them off if they've got horrible you know, character, uh, uh, characteristics, which they all do. I was always much more afraid of libel and I was always much more interested in talking about the music and less interested in talking about the people. But Mick's view uh, is that you should dive into those descriptions of people. And he was right because they made for very entertaining stories. And those were the stories that we shared on this podcast. So yeah, it's called Dead Rock Stars. You can get it on a platform called Acast uh, and not all the obvious things. Um, and it's still there. And, you know, one day maybe we'll do another one if we get time Um well, I mean, let, let's be honest, most of the current sort of like headline acts that are going around, you know, like Kiss or ACDC or Aerosmith or something, they're all pushing 70. So you've only got to wait about another 10 years and you could have a whole new raft of people. Well, it's funny, we, we, we had that kind of happy-go-lucky attitude at the start. And then as time passed and we found ourselves every week talking about someone who had died miserably or pointlessly or sadly or just in misery... The, the witty smiles fell from our faces and we realized that we were sort of talking about very serious stuff. Um, we were talking about the big things in life. Like, so why do we as human beings live? Why do we die? How do we, how do we use the time that is given to us? So it very, very quickly became a kind of rather deep metaphysical discussion, as well as the obvious funny stories, uh, which I think was one reason why it was popular. It got a, the Guardian made it their podcast of the week, which was very nice. Um, it got, it rapidly gained a lot of listeners um so yeah i'm glad the stuff is still there i'm, I'm good mates with the producer so uh, he and i might do something else um mick is i think self-producing his current one um but it's very good it's very funny he's an inexhaustible fan of stories the, yeah uh, the last one i listened i know there's a new one out this week but the last week's was judas priest right which a mix impression of a brummy accent just cracks me off mm, gold isn't it we used to he used to do this impression of bill ward of black sabbath every week just it became like something that was expected of <laughs> because people liked it so much it was very funny but so you say the guardian made it podcast of the week because yeah. uh, 
the, 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 you know, you are dead rock stars and The Guardian is kind of your stock in trade, isn't it? So every time someone with long hair dies, <laughs> you get a phone call and they're like, Joel, can you write an obituary? Um, well, it's, we not just, it- it's not just rock people, actually. I've, I've done uh, a few film people and film directors and all that kind of stuff as well. But uh, uh, there are... So The Guardian's obits desk, um, they've sort of appointed me their rock person, I guess. So either if someone, it sounds terrible, but if, if, if an announcement is made that someone is very ill, not even dead, but very ill, <laughs> either, either I will contact them or they will contact me and say, look, let's get an obit ready. The one I did for Lemmy, I, I think I submitted it three years before he died. Mm. Um, I was just about to say that. Yeah. And uh, on their request, it, it wasn't my idea. They said, would you do it? Um, and it's, Who's... you know what, though? It's very, it's something you have to take very, very seriously because... I, quite often I'm told that uh, a family member or the spouse of the person who, who has died has contacted the Guardian in tears to say, look, thank you so much. Um, or sometimes, you know, you messed up here. Can we please change this fact? You know, it, it's, it's, a, it, it's a really, really serious task. Mm. And what makes that worse is that you've only ever got three hours to do it or whatever. Yeah. So the most recent one I did, which was Ken Hensley of Uriah Heep, who I knew right the sad thing is like you know you know most of these people i, I was talking to him two years ago for some uh, liner notes for a bunch of uriah heat reissues that i was doing um i had to i i wanted his family to sign off on the obit and i wanted mick box who is the guitar player in uriah heat to sign off on as well so it was incumbent on me to make that happen before i sent it off to the guardian so i think they uh, called me on a Saturday morning and said, can you do this? And we need it by first thing tomorrow on a Sunday. Uh, so I had to, and there was a funeral going on and people were traveling and I got hold of their manager. So it, it's, what I'm trying to say is that it's, it's a complex job um, and it's some, something you have to get right because you do not want to upset people at the, at the worst point when they do not need to be upset right? yeah. with, with some inaccurate journalism or something that's wrong or, or comes across as disrespectful. So I do enjoy doing it. Uh, and it's incredibly well paid. It's the most well paid thing I do at Pro Rata um, because it's The Guardian, you know, a major, major, major publication. Um, but it's something that you have to take seriously as well. Um, and occasionally I do the same thing for The Telegraph, um, which, is, uh, which is the same, same sort of deal, really. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's fun, but it's, it's an honor. You know, these, these, are, these are giant ancient publications. You know, it's an honor to be involved. So, yeah. Wow. Yeah, and you had a question. Well, no, I was just, I was, uh, and the problem was it was a bit flippant, and then we got quite serious. Yes, I, don't, I do that. I, I, yeah, and I don't, and I know, Suck all I know. the fun out of a conversation. I, I, I know, I know, I know. That's twice you've done it this evening. Uh, um, but to be honest, if we hang around, you might do it again. Yeah, I'll try um, to. But 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 I was I, I was I was going to sort of speculate on on you know the most recent one you've done for somebody that the public thinks is in fairly ruddy health, um, but probably that would be that seems a little bit inappropriate now. So uh, like a surprise one, you mean? Yeah, yeah, one that's just been banked. Oh, I see. Um, I know. I think they've all been used. Right. Uh, I uh, no, I think I did one for Tony Iommi years ago. Right. Um, Tony had a. A cancer diagnosis. I mean, it is a long time ago, isn't it? Mm. It's probably five years ago, or maybe more. Uh, and the Guardian said, "Would you, would you please do an obit?" And I did. And they, they store it away, and they literally leave a gap for date of death and cause of death. Um, and yeah, <laughs> and you, you might even forget about it, right? And then mm. suddenly it appears, and someone drops your line saying, "Look, going, oh look, you've written about this." 
And uh, so, once again, it's quite sobering. So there you go, taking the fun out of that question. <laughs> and then I did one. Uh, I did one. Um, I've done a couple of dance music producers as well. There was Avicii, uh, mm. you know, the kid, the kid who yeah, killed himself, yeah. um, and his the cause of his death was not revealed at the time. Um, I think it was subsequently. I think it was subsequently revealed that he killed himself. And then I did one for um, Eric Remi- uh, Eric Morillo uh, six months ago or something, who was the guy behind that terrible song I like to move it you know um by real oh, to from, real yeah from that uh, film right from, which is yeah, Madagascar. Madagascar, Madagascar yeah. yeah and subsequently a lot of allegations unproven allegations I have to say but allegations nonetheless of some really dodgy sexual behavior on his part have come out so because they were only allegations uh, I didn't put them in the obit at the request I should say of the uh, of the Guardian staff the editor um and there were some complaints about that, right? You know, why didn't you mention this? And uh, there it's were not solid reasons. Not really the reason. place, though, is it? Uh, it's not it. the place, no. But again, are you telling the are you telling the whole story if you admit that mm. stuff? Um, so uh, the the point, the reason I mention this is that it's an illustration of how it's a complex task, right? It's a bit of a tightrope. Um, but you can only use the information that is available to you at the time, and often that is at very short notice. So you, you go with what is available. Mm. as much research as you can do and perform your due diligence as a journalist um so yeah I, I haven't messed up too many times i haven't had people come after me saying you said something horrible about my late husband in, in your obit but uh yeah i know he's a hero of ours jace but i wonder how long ago they first lodged uh keith richards about 1972 i think <laughs> <laughs> had we been born uh, yeah there's a there's a great meme um, I saved it the other day. It will go up on the guitar show. Hang on a minute. I found it yesterday. Um, uh, I never cheated death. I beat him fair and square. Keith Richards. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's like an old bluesman at the crossroads. Yeah, point, yes, isn't it? yeah. That's great. I like that. I like that. <laughs> I always, I, I mean, not that I'd want him to, to disappear at all, but I, I, I felt somehow it would have been in keeping if he died falling out of that, that coconut tree. Or whatever it was, <laughs> mm. that would have that would have just somehow been far more, you know, the kind of thing that would kill him. You know, have everything he put in his body has put in his body, everything he's done, and actually, you know, he dies falling out of a coconut tree. That would have been quite nice. But, but it, it is weird because we're we're having this sort of like festival discussion in the classroom today, and I was saying that if we don't do any kind of like positive bigging up. Younger artists, black artists, female artists. I mean, yeah. and we've talked about this before. The, the problem with, say, download, which is something that, you know, we're comfortable in talking about, the download festival. Yeah. When you look at the headliners of ACDC, Iron Maiden, Kiss, Black Sabbath, you know, all from the last couple of years, who's big enough that's behind them apart from the uh, Foo Fighters? Yeah. That, that can, and they can't headline every night every year <laughs> every year well even they are 20 years old gene simmons said it himself the other day he said that the last big rock band to come out was the foo fighters and that's not recent right no no um, not at all yeah it's interesting you've got bands like lamb of god and stuff like that that are sort of big support acts um i i when metallica go and when maiden go um you will have rammstein and slipknot but yeah. they, those are 25 years old those bands themselves mm. um yeah, beyond that, you're going to have a load of decent-sized bands, I think. I interviewed Lars Ulrich a few years ago. I mean, I interviewed him tons of times, but I remember once saying to him, could you ever do another Black Album, right? So for those who don't know, Metallica's fifth record is this immense-sized album. It's as big as Back in Black. It's as big as Hotel California. It's massive. 
And I said, well, so will you ever do another Black Arm Lars? And he said, it's not that we can't write those songs, but the music industry that exists to support a massive album like that just doesn't exist anymore, right? People mm-hmm. don't buy uh, 30 million physical copies of a record paying 10 quid each time or whatever it is. People just don't do that anymore. Um, there's no need for them to do it. Therefore, they won't do it. Um, so it's, so that you can apply that logic to, to the, the whole big band situation. Where are the giant bands? They're there, but as you just said, Jason, they're all really old. They're yeah, all serving yeah. out their time, you know, for one last run. Um, so it, it'll be interesting to have this conversation in 10 years when we ourselves will be 60 years old, for God's yeah. sake, you know, and see who those big, big, massive bands are. There's not going to be any. No. There'll be a load of respectable sized bands, without a doubt, but no behemoths. I and I wonder whether download has to revert back to a Monsters of Rock one day, uh, you know, only six or seven bands on the bill no i think you'll have the headliners being uh like lamb of god and um biffy clyro and you know biffy clyro is not a good example because they're really big but i don't know um what's a big old rock metal band that isn't huge machine head trivium that kind of stuff yeah. big respectable numbers you know these, these are good sized bands um but but they're not you know million million sellers are they um so i think it'll it'll keep going you know, you know, it will happen. There's been. It was interesting you just mentioned Biffy there. There's been bands that have been close. You know, I mean, I mean, and and okay, it's not all rock, but I mean, you know, Coldplay were a good size. Yeah, they, they, you know, they, yeah, they, big they, band, yeah, that they yeah. you know, they were a thing, and it may be just the world now. It's easier. It's maybe just easier to do that as a solo act. It maybe is that the world is now geared up for. The Ed Sheerans and the Taylor Swifts and the Adels, maybe I don't, I don't know why that would be, why mm. it would, but but somehow that that's what if you if you look at what's come along in the past decade, it's because you have to split the money one way rather right. than four or five ways. Well, that's yeah. that's very much the Ed Sheeran. Why you have so many bands where there's a band leader and then a bunch of salaried employees. Yeah. I know, mm. I don't object to that model. It seems no. to make sense. That's actually a recipe for stability. Yeah, in yeah, some yeah. ways, a benevolent uh, what's the word? Benevolent dictatorship. I mean, Jace, you're, you're an event organiser. You, you, I, I reckon that these people will still want to go and see bands. They'll still want to have a beer and sing along with a band. Mm. Perhaps we're overthinking the size of the band. As long as there's loads of bands and it's fun, yeah. and it's, you know, people will still go, right? And they'll still pay for it. it is, yeah, I mean, you could be right. It's interesting that it's Live Nation, isn't it, that run Download, and they yeah. spend literally millions on booking ACDC or Metallica or Kiss to kind of headline it. Uh, which if you um, if you're like me and have access to companies house accounts you kind of delve into some of these things and have a look at how much money Glastonbury makes or or whatever Um, and and it's not very much there's a lot of expense for not a lot of return now I understand with Live Nation that it's more about a return on the day because they've got all of these bands signed up not just for download but globally for a number of years so you could use that festival as a marketing campaign for the tours that follow Um, but as a standalone event most of these things don't make that much financial sense what about a small festival you know like the Guildfest used to be or whatever does that does that have a higher profit margin relevant related to its size well I I think it quite possibly did, but of course that collapsed. Yeah, it's a poor example because it did collapse, but when it was solvent, it was seen to be doing well. I mean, you had people like, I tell you what, we had the aforementioned Adamant. I went one year and there was Adamant, there was Peter Andre, Madness, 
um, someone, some not Slade, but someone like Slade, you know, um, mm. all these sort of reasonable sized bands. And it was a lot of fun. It was packed and it wasn't cheap to go in either. So I'm assuming that that much, much smaller event uh, is, can make money. Well, actually, it's funny, I was talking to my mate this week and we were talking about uh, the music live that I used to run and the, the guitar show. And I was like, do you know what? I was thinking, I was doing some figures for the accountant. So I was looking at like last year, well, this year's event for end of the financial, because it was in last financial year, because it was February. So I've got to go this month to my accountants and sign off last. Can I just say that's a really interesting um, story? Yeah, shut up. Um and and I was saying that the, the return on investment from the guitar show is significantly more than when I used to run music live at the NEC. So and, you're promoting and, your own product here, mate. That's, yeah. That's so, cool. but the, the NEC used to cost five hundred and sixty thousand pounds to put on. <laughs> uh, it was just an insane amount of money to make a decent profit, but actually the return on investment was really poor. Five hundred and sixty grand for a weekend. Yeah. That's ridiculous. I mean, admittedly, it's huge. I mean, you know, but the, the NEC used to charge me £102,000 just for the empty space. Can I just say, I saw Level 42 at the uh, NEC in 1988. Did you? Mm. With his base up here? Yeah, yeah. Up there. For the, sorry, for anyone who didn't spot that, you can imagine he's holding his base <laughs> up high. And can I also say, while you're talking about the guitar show, a, a worthy event. I mean, a worthy event, definitely. But definitely second in importance in the calendar compared to the... Uh, the guitar show, which Future Publishing runs, which is the uh, publisher of my magazine, Bass Club. I just need to say that, all right? You, you can say, say that. that. On, on the record, off. I want people to understand that. Jason, you know, he, he, has, a, he has a good go at it. He has a good go. <laughs> Bless his heart. He has a good go. But, you know, he's very much in, in our following our footsteps. Anyway. That's right. Following in your footsteps with more exhibitors and more visitors. <laughs> all right. So is it median? Is it mean? It's all one of those weird, you know, who knows? Who, statistics? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> yes right <laughs> all i can say is i've been involved in a number of conversations with jason about your event um and they've never always gone quite as well as that one did <laughs> you know jason he's uh he's a player he's a big fish in a small pond and uh i wish him nothing but the best with his endeavors and uh you know if you can't make it to the real show why not go why not go, why not go to birmingham <laughs> Oh, bless you. Oh, what a laugh. What a laugh. <laughs> so, moving on. Mm. So, what's the next book? Uh, it's the autobiography of Frank Bellow, who is the bass player in Anthrax. And while that might sound like you're on just another heavy metal memoir, it's a bit different. As I was explaining to you on the phone the other night, Jason, it's, uh, it's a bit of a self-help manual for, for men, really, uh, who are struggling with the idea, the concept of being a son and being a father. Um, so it's very different from uh, the usual uh, approach to an autobiography because it's, it's designed to impart wisdom that Frank has been through uh, in a fairly traumatic life that he's had so far. So um, although that might sound a bit dull and a bit earnest, actually, it's not like that at all. It's full of hilarious stories because he's been in, he was in Anthrax. He still is in Anthrax, sorry. You know, one of the, the craziest bands ever who've had this nuts history. Um, but he himself has been through so much trauma um, that we decided to focus on that. Uh, for the book and gene simmons has done the foreword jason bringing it bringing it back to you yeah he said um, he managed to get kissing eventually well i mean I've, i won't go on about this all day but briefly frank is the world's biggest kiss fan apart from you jason and um <laughs> and i said well look why don't i try and get gene to do the forward 
and Jean has done the foreword. And what's hilarious is that it, it ties in with Frank's memories of being a teenager and literally waiting outside um, Kiss's management offices in New York in the 1970s in the freezing cold all day, waiting for Kiss to come out. And this happened so frequently that Gene Simmons would get to know Frank's name and would say, oh, Frank Boho. And, you know, and, 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 and in the end, Frank even got into the studio where they were recording a new album at the time. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's of extreme emotional significance for Frank that Gene has done his foreword. It's not like we've roped in just some random celebrity. Um, and Gene did a fantastic job, a very, very emotional job, actually, uh, in a way that I haven't really seen from Gene before when I've interviewed him, uh, where he talked about his own father being absent and how he'd achieved redemption uh, through being a good father to his son, you know, like, like we all try and be to our parents. So anyway, that's, that's quite new. So that's coming out end of next year. And then after that, um, there's four books over the next three years. So it just, it, these things just keep rolling. I mean, I'm basically always, always working on a book at some stage, either chatting, talking with someone about doing a book with them, some musician or some, some well-known person or, or my own book. Uh, the, or the deal is signed and I'm working on it and I'm actually doing the writing and the research or the book is finished and it's about to come out and we're doing picture research and you know all that last minute production stuff or it's out and I'm doing press um, and so that's been very much the way over the last 20 years and uh, it's nice I mean my main my main job is as editor of bass player that's what I spend most of my time doing um, because you know editing these magazines is, is no joke you know it's a lot of work um, but I'm able to balance it so that I can do a book or two a year as well, plus the odd bit of freelance writing. Um, for example, I, <laughs> I write a lot of text every year for the program at the Download Festival, right? Oh, uh, right. And a couple of others, the actual printed program that you buy. Um, and also for Bloodstock, I do the entirety of the Bloodstock program, obviously not this year. And who, who knows if it will happen next year. So little gigs like that that come along as well. And then, of course, I was teaching at Ben with you, Jason, for a couple of years as well until, again, I ran out of time. Uh, which is why I had to jack that in as well as um, the, the podcast I was doing. So it's time management really for me, as it is for all of us at this stage in the game. Um, people come to me uh, and ask me if I want to do books with them and I'm lucky, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that they'll do that. Um, I turn down a lot of ideas. Um, my view is that if I like the person, the person's interesting. Um, and if I like the music, then I'll say yes. Um, uh, no matter what the deal is, right. You know, hopefully there'll be a good deal. Um, if the music is not to my taste or the person is a bit of a dick, then I'll, I'll usually pass. Uh, and that has happened quite a lot. But uh, we're at a point now in the specific field of music autobiography where the market is very saturated. You know, every, every someone who was a drummer in <sighs> Zodiac Mind Warp and the Love Reaction for 20 minutes has got a book out, you know. Slam Thunderhide. My God, I hope Slam Thunderhide has got a book out. That would be amazing. <laughs> or uh, actually, the I, we mentioned earlier that I did a book with Woody Woodmansey, who's the drummer in The Spiders from Mars. Um, uh, that was a great book, but there has been a whole slew of books from people who played with David Bowie for 90 seconds mm. in, in 1982. Uh, and while it's not for me to, you know, to, to bring those people down, sometimes you have to ask yourself, in my position as the author of these books, does the book need to be written? You know, does it really need to be written? Um, is a publisher going to risk a significant amount of money in this? Um, if they're not, is it worth my while? Am I, what are my other motivations for doing it? Because I love music, probably not. Um, but, but fortunately, from my point of view, people like me and Mick Wall um, and Mark Eglinton, who I mentioned earlier, and a few others, we, we, we can make a decent living out of this. Um, and it's fun and it's great. You know, what we're doing is we are committing the history of our culture 
for future generations to read. When we three are long underground, people will be reading these books in, in physical or digital format for hundreds of years. Um, and I tend to go into these books with, with that in mind. Mm. So sometimes someone I'm working with will say, oh, I want to name this manager who fucked me over, man. And I'm like, in 200 years, do you want your descendants reading that? Or should we allocate some page space to something a bit more positive? Um, and that's happened on innumerable occasions that something that a negative story, uh, they wanted to put it in. And I said, let's not. And then it became really obvious afterwards that it would have been a crap idea to put it in <laughs> for all sorts of reasons. So, yeah, that's what I do. Well, can you can you at some point document, uh, I mentioned it earlier, that wonderful time of sort of Brit rock in the late 80s, early 90s, that Little Angels, Thunder, The Wild Hearts, The Almighty. What? Choir Boys. Choir Boys, Dogs to More. get the Choir Boys. I think that's the book for you to do, my friend. Um, I, I'm a fan of Thunder, and I listen to all the rest of that stuff. I was obsessed with those Zodiac Mindmore albums. That's why I keep, or early songs. That's why I keep bringing them up. Um, I never really got into the Choir Boys and the Dogs no more. I knew they were there because I read mm-hmm. Kerrang every week. You know, read every word of Kerrang. Yeah. But um, what I might do, and actually I'm putting this pitch together now for a publisher, is do. I've had this idea in my head for ages that 1991 was rock's year zero right heavy rock mm-hmm. year zero in america because in 1991 you had metallica's self-titled album you had nevermind uh, and you had uh, blood sugar sex magic by the chili peppers and my view is that between those three albums they changed hard rock permanently i mean or permanent, at least for the entirety of the 1990s because suddenly Wikipedia people are listening to grunge people are listening to grunge alternative rock in the form of Nirvana, which became grunge, which begat alternative metal, funk metal, and new metal. Um, and all that lasted until at least 2000, 2001. So what I may do, uh, if I can persuade someone to publish it, is do a book on 1991. Um, and what's interesting is that I lived it in real time, right? I was 20, like we all were. So that was a real, I remember watching that Smells Like Teen Spirit um, video and yeah. not actually being that impressed and then realizing that I couldn't get away from it. All people were doing listening, listening, to, listening to Nirvana uh, and the Chili Peppers and, and Metallica. And suddenly you remember this, Jason, you could not listen to Bon Jovi or Wasp or Cinderella anymore without looking like a complete you know, outmoded idiot. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of... Um, see, I, re- I, I genuinely listen to music for pleasure. Yeah. And that, that whole grunge thing, which... Actually, as I've got older, I've come to appreciate. Um, yeah, yeah. It, it just seems so inward-looking and miserable oh, it was. It was. that I just was like, oh, it used to be fun. I, and I just I bailed on the rock scene at that point. I, yeah. I, mean, I was still listening to Face No More always seemed to be having fun. Yeah. Just, they had this kind of sarcastic uh, outward look upon things, didn't they? In fact, in my Spotify thing, it just told me that my most listened song this year was a faith no more song last last cup of sorrow um and i'm i'm like yeah i'm always a big fan of those sorry i interrupted you but basically i was agreeing with that yes they kind of stood to one side didn't they you know? yeah so I, I i i sort of like dropped out the, the only sort of band that i kept interest in their new albums was the black crows um and they always were freakily just a different to the kind of music of there, wasn't it? yeah yeah i think what happened that that hard rock scene then went off in a, in, a, in a load of different directions, so it didn't almost have to compete. So you got it either popified itself. So if you think about it, you think about it. Okay, before Nevermind, I think the last Bon Jovi album was um, it was the it was the 
fourth or fifth one, wasn't it? It was the one with um, Dry County and um, Keep the Faith. Keep the Faith. Was, so you, right. you got that. And then after that, they they then become a pop act to a certain extent for a couple of albums. It becomes very, very poppy. You, you, you know, Aerosmith disappear off into a direction, essentially making soundtracks for movies. You know? Yeah. I think that's a little reductive. That one song was huge. I mean, it was inescapably yeah. massive and saved, yeah. saved their asses. I think. Oh, it did. But they're, they're not the same, you know, I because I liked Aerosmith before that point. Yeah. And I like the scuzzy 70s, you know, fucked yeah. up Rolling Stones. Well, again, I've come to appreciate that in later life, right? Now I get it. Toys in the Attic makes total sense to me. Um, at the time, it was a bit lightweight compared to Slayer and whatever I was listening to in my kind of, you know, mm. black or white mind about what was good. <laughs> but what you just said about it splinting off in different directions was what made it interesting. I mean, Alice in Chains and Soundgarden and Pearl Jam and Tad and Melvins and, you know, the earlier stuff like Mudhoney and all that stuff. You could go back and really dive into it, couldn't you? Do a deep dive into mm. how amazing it was. Um and even then, when you started getting into corn, you know, and cold chamber, and then later on, limp biscuit and slipknot, it wasn't for everybody. And in fact, a lot of it really hasn't stood up well. But what is interesting about all that stuff to me is that it represents a 1990s way of thinking. Mm-hmm. So many of these 80s bands were either wiped off the map or completely struggled for no reason other than MTV decided that plaid shirts were cool. Yeah. Blows my mind. It was a really, I mean, it was almost. Um overnight it pretty much was mm. yeah, yeah i mean you, you know uh, so um we both uh, worked with uh, my mate paul uh, yeah, Dreadlock, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, who does all the artwork for the uh, guitar show and did it for music live and stuff like that and that he, his name, was, paul Dreadlock. yeah paul Dreadlock. um and he um he was saying because we were both going we didn't know each other at the time but we were both going to the same clubs in birmingham rock clubs and, and stuff like that and he said that he was always in like the the little room downstairs that played like indie music like the cure and stuff like One that stuff yeah and we were upstairs listening to god it would have been guns and roses faster pussycat motley crew but blah 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 and and then all of a sudden the rooms flipped and we were shoved in the tiny little room and all yeah, of that yeah. weird alternative music was what right james dixon and whatever yeah mm. it was so that's all this fascinates me right and i, and I can't think of a uh, an equivalent seismic sort of thing that happened in music that was in my formative years i'm sure subsequently you know if i'd been 10 years younger Britpop would have been the thing yeah, if yeah. I'd been five years younger than that it would have been emo you know mm. um and I, I was there for all that stuff and paid attention to it but it wasn't as, as uh, personally important to me because by then i was like 30 you know and i knew what yeah. i wanted to listen to anyway so that i might do that book that would be fun i think that'd be very interesting i think so you can send me a free copy <laughs> <laughs> Charge you for the postage. <laughs> no, I'll just meet you halfway and we'll have a pint. <laughs> you know, I found, uh, I was looking at eBay idly, uh, as you do, and I found a copy of one of my books that someone was selling <laughs> that I had signed to a friend of mine. <laughs> it said, um, hey, Katie, you know, love Joel, whatever. Yeah. And I emailed her and said, what, what the fuck? <laughs> and she said, oh, my God, I'm really embarrassed. I've just split up with my boyfriend and he's taken a load of my stuff and he's selling it. But uh, that kind of made me laugh. I tell you what, she did well there on the hoof. That was a good excuse. Yeah, yeah. She did really well there. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know if it being signed added more than 10p to the value of the book. But uh, no, that, that was funny. We had a laugh about it. Maybe you could put a little note on the auction saying you're happy to sign it again. Change the name. <laughs> <laughs> 
You can actually <laughs> have it properly, you know. It's a very sustainable way of working. Good for the so I got an email, got an email back, like, it must be 15 years ago now from this guy <coughs> saying, oh, I live in San Francisco and I'm broke and I'm very ill. You know, all I want is a copy of this particular book that you've written. I know, oh, okay, uh, no problem. And I sent it to him. And then about five years later, he said the same thing. And I know, oh, okay, yeah, I'll send it to you. And a few years after that, he was in the news right, in America, in San Francisco, being this terminal ripper offer of people, <laughs> scrounging free stuff. He had like a warehouse full of this crap. And uh, I had just gone, oh, yeah, no problem. Yeah, I'll, uh, no, I'll, let me send that to you. You know, I'll put a tenor in as well. You know, oh. <laughs> this is the opening a library in San Francisco. <laughs> Oh. Fair play to the guy, you know. <laughs> God damn. Well, we we probably ought to come to some kind some kind of stop. Really. Meaningful conclusion, yeah. Uh, well, I don't think we need to put anything meaningful in because that would that would undermine that would, that, that would undermine the previous hour and a quarter. Um, <laughs> but but it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you for letting me come on and drone about my uh, about my books. It's been a pleasure. No, it's been really, really, really nice. And you must do something else in the po- in the podcast space. Thank you. I'd love to come back. Yeah, yeah. When I have something uh, slightly more meaningful to say or a product to promote, then I'll come back and bore you about it. Well, no, I was thinking more about you must do something of your own again. You know, that, that, that void needs to be filled. Well, I'm not sure it does, frankly. I think people like you are doing a, a very good job of podcasting, podcasting. And, of course, it's this massive growth industry now, isn't it? There's billions of them. Uh, so I don't know if my voice needs to be added to the pile. Probably my skills are best used as a book writer and a magazine editor. But thank you for that. Uh, and thank you, Jason, for what you said earlier about Dead Rock Stars. That was so much fun doing that. But yeah. um, in the meantime, I think I'll let you guys do all the hard work. Thank you. That's, that's okay. Very the great kindly. thing is that we can say goodbye now and then we can carry on recording and I can just go, of course, their show isn't as good as mine. And yeah. there is no comeback from you at all. Yeah. I was expecting that, Jason. And uh, in all seriousness, your show is great. It's just not as good as us. <laughs> the only thing that gets in the way of you saying that, Jace, essentially is the truth. That's the only, <laughs> the only problem with what you've just suggested is the fact that factually it's just not true. But when you've been a writer as long as I have, you know that the truth is a mere side issue. Oh, it gets in the way. It gets in the way. Listen, I've got a politics degree. I know the truth. Yeah, yeah. <coughs> a mere massive, man-made construction. It's a massive inconvenience. Mm. So, right, I'm better. just still here with the three chords and the truth. Yeah. Oh, or something approaching hell. it, I know. Yeah. Bloody hell. All, all, right, those, all those guitars and you can only play three chords. <laughs> <laughs> But they're Thank the you. right three uh, chords. Right you guys keep not letting me. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. No, cheers, y'all. Take All care. Right, we'll speak cheers. again. Cheers, yeah. guys. Bye. Bye. See ya. See ya. <laughs>Thanks for listening to 9 to 42, the podcast from the team at the Guitar Show UK. If you've enjoyed the show, then please remember to hit the subscribe button and share with other like-minded souls. For more information about 9 to 42, please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at the Guitar Show UK. This has been an A Short Stories production. Hold up. 